Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we'll be discussing the importance and value of having options with special guest Hill Harper. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, the president of media sales at BET Networks, and the author of Dirty Little Secrets. Hill Harper is a nationally recognized actor, appearing in projects such as The Good Doctor, CSI New York, and Limitless. Today, we're sitting down with Hill Harper to discuss options, their value, their importance, and how you can create options for both yourself and others. Let's get started. During the Blueprint Men's Summit, you made a statement that you had multiple college degrees, but you had a job that you didn't need a high school, you you didn't even need a high school diploma for. Uh, but having those degrees gave you options. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. And thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I think this is fantastic, uh, Lewis. I'm so proud of what you're building here with with Waymaker. So thank you, first and foremost. Uh, you know, I think that, like many things, we're we are foundationally taught the wrong thing about education, um, and oftentimes we're not taught about true value. In, in, in life and building success. What do I mean by that? I mean that we're taught educationally that you should study something so you can do something else, which is foundationally wrong to me because that, that very premise begins to negate without saying it, the idea that you don't have the capacity to be masters of many things. There's that old saying, don't be a jack of all trades and a master of none. I, I, I abhorrently disagree with that saying. I believe if you look at the greatest people in history and the greatest people living today, they are all masters of many things. That's, that's in fact what creates their greatness. And so you want to lean in to learning as much about as many different things as possible and then using your creative energies, your entrepreneurial energies or wherever your energies lead you to make plausible connections with those areas to create success or a new path. So therefore, Having options is more valuable than being a complete expert in one little slice. What do I mean by that? Uh, because if the bottom falls out or if a pandemic happens and something switches, that if you're all in in one little slice, then every, you can lose everything. But if you actually have options and you have abilities in multiple areas, um, the analogy I often use, sadly, is about... Uh, the NBA basketball player. It's fantastic that there are a number of brothers that spend their entire life learning that skill. And it is extremely valuable skill to learn, to be able to be extremely creative and beautiful with a ball, make a basket from 30 feet out, dunk a basketball, rebound it, dribble, pass, see the whole court. All of those are extremely valuable skill sets. Yet, On average, five years after an NBA ball player retires, 60% of them file for bankruptcy. 60%. Yet we hear young brothers talking about, I want to be a baller. Woo, I'm going to be a baller. That's what I want to be, a baller. Oh, you want to be bankrupt? Five years after you retire, even if you make the league and you spend all your time in that, what do I mean by that? I mean, if those same brothers developed a skill set and optionality to be money managers while they're making money, and they're making their money work for them, then if their career lasts five years, 10 years, 20, starts to not matter because they have the ability and the option 
to use their money however they want and to maybe even help other people grow wealth. So what do I mean? Options are the most valuable thing you can have. That's why when people are put in prison, what's the number one thing that they do in prison? The number one penalty is they steal all your options. You have no options about when you eat, when you go to the bathroom, when you sleep, where you go. How? That's a massive penalty. So the reverse is true too. The more options you have, massive benefit. Optionality is key. We need to learn that more in, in, in our community and then help people build their optionality. So COVID-19 and, and all of the variables that come along with it has sort of taken the wind out of a sail out of a lot of black students. Uh, I've met too many who said they dropping out, uh, they're not going back. They can't afford to go back. How do we keep these young people motivated to stay in school and press through the course? How do we do that? We have to connect their passion with exploration. So, and not judge the passion. Again, going back to what I just said, too often we equate education with career. To me, those two things are or do not, they can be connected, but they do not have to be. As you said, I do a job. You do not need a high school diploma to do. Yet, I have two graduate degrees from Harvard, an undergraduate degree from Brown in two different disciplines, because I did a joint degree, and I have seven honorary doctorates, okay? None of those degrees speak to anything that I do as my profession for which I pay my bills. So watch where that is. Yet, all of them help me do it better, help me enjoy it more, and help me navigate a career for success in this area that I'm passionate about. I love acting. I love entertainment. I love doing what I do. And I truly believe that I would not, I will, would not have met the long-term career success I've had, but for my educational foundation. Education is simply a foundational tool. It does not guarantee success. It doesn't guarantee happiness. It doesn't guarantee anything. But just like building a house, you need a foundation. And education is one of the foundational elements for building a great life. Now, does it have to be Harvard or Brown or Howard or Morehouse? No. You can find education online. You can do your own education, meaning you could do your own research and read up and study and challenge yourself to be a better critical thinker. I am not in any way some elitist that you need a degree from here or whatever. You can create your own PhD program and, 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 and create your own, but you need to learn and grow your mind and become a better critical thinker and know more about many things. That's the key. And that's another thing. People get caught up in this degree. Well, shoot, Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of Harvard. He's a college dropout and he did Facebook. And now he's one of the richest men in the world with one of the most powerful companies in the world. So clearly you don't need a college degree. I'm not saying you need a college degree, but Mark Zuckerberg learned something. He learned some things. He knows how to code. He knows how to write code. Do you know how to write code? Okay, so, so here's the deal. Um, it's more about learning. 
and education to me is about educating your mind to, to create a foundational tool to build your life and also provide options. That's it. And connect it to what you're passionate about. That ultimately, that's it. And, and that's how we get people still connected. If you can't afford to go to school, then go, don't go to some expensive private school and run up a bunch of debt. There are so many good local community colleges where you can take a, a, a class for $250, $500, go online and take a class. You can cobble together your own educational program to create your own educational foundation if you're not in a position to afford it. Because I do not recommend going into extreme amounts of debt for uh, uh, education that doesn't pay for itself in a way. Now, I went into a lot of debt for my Harvard degrees. I graduated with six figures of debt, yet I, I looked at graduates from Harvard, graduate programs, and what their future earnings are, and I made a calculus to invest in myself that it was a good calculus to go into that level of debt. And you know what? It was a good calculus. Now, I just advised someone who told me they wanted to go to the Cordon Bleu School and they couldn't afford it. And I said, well, how much debt would be over the first two years? They said, oh, $60,000. And I said, hold on. Cordon Blue School is great. And you want to be a great chef. That's fine. But how about this? Why don't you apprentice at the top restaurants in the world for free? You, In other words, you give away your services for free and work a side job doing whatever. Um, and you're learning those two years. And then hopefully you develop an amazing relationship with this top chef in the world and you learn, but you come out with zero debt after two years and you come out with new relationships as opposed to Cordon Bleu. If you can afford the Cordon Bleu school, then by all means go. But if you have to get in $6,000 of debt where your first job coming out of there will be a line cook anyway, making $16, I don't think that's the right bargain. So we've got a new president, which will have a new administration. What do you think they should do and how should we encourage them to focus more attention and more resources to educating uh, people of color. Okay, a couple things. First, I think it's a, um, a false notion to go federal. I have very little confidence in our federal uh, leadership in general, um, no matter what party it is, no matter who they are. There is so many encumbrances and so much fat and problems. And the simple fact is the, the federal government is broken. So expecting results out of that apparatus is just setting yourself up for heartbreak. That's just my personal opinion. Now, does that mean that we don't hold them accountable because we put them in office? By all means, we need to hold them accountable. We need to be very clear with our demands and what we need to see happen. But I would like more focus to happen on the local, uh, the state and local level, because that is really where you see day in, day out functional shifts and changes. And we need to hold our local representatives accountable. And we also need more young people to consider running for office. I truly believe that. So if you're watching this now, I don't care if you haven't even graduated college yet, think about running for a public office now. You can already, it's not too late. If you can vote, you can run. Um, and in some cases, you don't even need to be a voting age to run for an office because you don't, you just won't be able to cast a vote for yourself, but you still can occupy the office. So we need more new people in these offices, number one. Number two, we need to hold our federal 
federal folks accountable, certainly the Biden and Harris administration accountable because our community put them in office and they need to, to get the funds. But here's the deal. It's always a, it's always a trickle down because the way things work, people have to understand you, 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 you have federal oversight, so to speak, where checks are written. You have state kind of management and then local operations. And the question is, can we hold them on the federal level accountable to get the money to and resources to the state and then to hold the state accountable to get that management down to the local level and then hold the local folks accountable to make sure that that money and resources and programs are distributed to the people themselves. And oftentimes it breaks way up here before it even gets all the way down. Um, and so, so holding folks accountable on all levels is critical. And just because you voted and just because we elected them doesn't mean the work really starts January 20th as soon as they take office. So you, you just mentioned getting more young people involved in the political process. Absolutely. Uh, we, for the, probably critical. the first time. To save our democracy. To right. save our democracy, it's critical because there's, there's such a, a lack of trust in our democracy. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, uh, the older people who have played this game have basically been ripoff artists. And that's what they are. I mean, I hate to say it, but most of them are. Most of these lifetime politicians um, are, you know, they're playing a game. They are playing a game with people's money, with their tax dollars. And, uh, and it's a shame. It's a shame. And I'm, I'm talking about all parties, you know, because most of these people are lifetime politicians, all of them. Right. But how do we do that? You know, I know people who start off, you know, in political science and some people graduate and then they go on to law school. And then you say, uh, are you going to be a lawyer? Or are you going to be a politician? And they're going, oh, no, I'm not going to be a politician. Oh, no, Louis, why would you say be a politician? Who would do that? How do we really motivate and inspire these young people to get involved in order to sort of change the future of our communities and our country? Well, it's it's like anything else. You you have you start them early in positions that. Let's be clear. Most people don't want to run for office because they're afraid to lose. Let's just say what it is. All those people that you said politician, no politician. What are you talking about? If you said um, I'm going to appoint you to this position, you don't even have to run. You get it? Is it? I do it. Oh, really? I could be I could be head of the city council. What? You just got? I don't have to run. I don't have to make myself vulnerable and and raise you know raise money and, and go out and campaign and 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 get embarrassed potentially. It's fear. It's fear, Lewis. And but and fear dictates so much of our lives. You know me. I I think I say fear stands for false evidence appearing real. The vast majority of fears we carry are are, are lies that we've been told by somebody else who wants to keep us stuck. And 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 so so many people are afraid to run because they're afraid to lose. They're afraid to be embarrassed. They're afraid to be vulnerable. They're afraid to go out there and say, I want this. And it's public. Everybody knows. And if you don't win, everybody knows. And that's about ego and fear um, rather than about wanting to fundamentally see something shift and change. Uh, and so we got to start them early in, in, in types of, of races that it literally just takes you rolling up your sleeves to win, meaning, you know, someone's going, someone's going to win. It's just who does the work, you know? I mean, we have, there was, there was a presidential candidate 
that is now known around the world that before he ran for president had had only about 12,000 votes cast for him in South Bend, Indiana. 12,000 votes cast for him. And now he's on the international political stage because he had the courage to run for office. He had the courage to run for mayor in a small little town. He won that. I think 12,000 votes were cast for him. He hadn't won anything else and he runs for president. It's about having the courage to step out, be vulnerable, say you deserve it. And you, we do. Our people deserve, we keep putting people in office. We, need, we should be running for office. There's a young brother in uh, Denver who's running the school board named Tay, uh, Tay Anderson. I was on a panel with him. He gets death threats on a daily. He's 21 years old. And he's controlling a multi-billion dollar school you know, system. Um, but he stepped out. He said, this, this school system didn't serve me, so I'm running. And he won. And people hate the fact that he won. And they don't like him because he's very outspoken. And he just keeps referring people back to the fact that he won. He won. You got a problem with me? Um, take it up next time I, I run. And, uh, and we need to have that type of attitude, that type of, that type of grit, hubris, courage to step in the public arena and go. And anybody who does that, I'll say it right now, I will support you and be there for you. I mean, we, we, we're seeing the results of activist people running. Just look at what just happened in, in, uh, in Los Angeles where the new, uh, the new DA has, has abolished all of these abhorrent, abhorrent things. It's like you want to you solve police brutality, you, start, you stop charging a lot of young brothers that the police pick up. And if you stop charging them, they're going to stop picking them up because the one thing police don't like to do is paperwork that has no meaning, right? So every time they pick somebody up and the person is just let right out, they're going to be like, dang, I'm going to stop I'm gonna stop picking people up for, for carrying an ounce of marijuana because this is like, it's a waste of time. Exactly. So you can, you can help stop, stop and frisk by having a new activist DA in. I know in Chicago, you guys know something about that. And, and people came after that, right? Because, whoa, no, 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 no. We, we actually like to have systemic racism in place. If you're trying to dismantle systemic racism, then that's not something we want to see. That's why we need multiple people in multiple places dismantling these apparatus. So let, we've, we've talked about education. We've talked about politics. Now we're going to talk about something I think you know a little bit about. Uh, the healthcare system, all right? <laughs> you, you, you play this role on The Good Doctor, uh, and, and uh, uh, you, you do a pretty good job at it. Dr. Mark COVID-19 has uh, exposed so many deficiencies uh, in, in our country and in our healthcare system. Uh, we know we don't have enough doctors, we don't have enough nurses, and then when you go down to people of color who participate uh, in those fields, they're even smaller. How do you believe that we can educate Black people, number one, more about their health and get them involved in doing different things, different lifestyles, to sort of, number one, address some of these underlying conditions that has been exposed because of COVID-19, 
And then also, second part of that question, how do we get more people uh, who are black and brown to get involved in the healthcare system? Okay, well, let me take the second one first. Um, I had the honor of participating in a documentary recently called Black Men in White Coats. And my character, as you mentioned on The Good Doctor, is a black man in a white coat, you know? And the numbers of black men who are physicians is atrocious. So what we need to do is let people know that there are bona fide, really rewarding careers in medicine that are available to you. They're there. Whether you become a nurse, nurse practitioner, a doctor, physician, dentist, uh, surgeon, mental health worker, um, there are so many different verticals that are interesting and fascinating and helpful. Why is this important? It's important for the point you were making that the simple fact of the matter, systemic racism runs through the system of healthcare as well as the individual providers. And we are treated differently in terms of care. There are numerous studies that show that we are under-prescribed, for instance, pain medication because of bias against pain management, as if we some, somehow are either prone to be addicts or we are Herculean in our ability to withstand pain. Uh, but the point is, is that we are well underdiagnosed in terms of pain management. We are underdiagnosed in terms of how we are treated in terms of uh, uh, how many tests are run on us when we present a problem that's not clearly and acutely diagnosable. Um, all of these things have negative health outcomes. If we look at the infant mortality rate with black women, I was, President Obama appointed me to the president's cancer panel, so I served on the cancer panel making recommendations to his White House. Um, I'm a cancer survivor. Uh, uh, that was an amazing panel to be on because I learned so much about cancer and cancer treatment and cancer care. Our incidents around cancer, God, you know, obviously God bless Chadwick Bozeman. God bless the sister, um, Danielle, uh, who just passed yesterday of colon cancer, um, um, who was in this, the, the movie BAPS. Um, you know, listen, we have to get to these things early. If you notice something's a little not right, don't play through it. Go get checked and then ask the doctor questions. And if something's still not feeling right, get checked again and ask more questions. So that's how we start taking care of our individual health. Health, don't take no for an answer and keep getting checked. But we need more diversity in people of color in medicine in general, caring for us. Um, I, I seek out finding a doctor of color just because I know that there is bias in the system. So I want my doctor to be black, you know, because I want to see like, you know, I want to make sure I'm taking the variables out. Like I know you're going to order every test, you know, that's right. Let's get, let's get there. Um, and so here's the deal. We need to encourage more folks to get involved, just like the political system, get involved in medicine, certainly. And we also need to make sure that we are taking care of our health on the front side. There's so much information about healthy habits, um, and eating properly as well as exercise and all of the things that can be very preventative that we don't talk about enough in our community. Um, and, and, and there's plenty of people out there doing it. 
and plenty of ways to get that information. People can't say that they didn't know they shouldn't be eating a Popeye's fried chicken sandwich. You can't say, you know, you're not supposed to eat. Now, if you decide to eat every once in a while, or if you decide, you know what, I just need to taste it, buy one of them things, cut a quarter of it and eat it. Then you get the flavor, you get the taste, you enjoy it, and throw the three quarters of it in the trash. It is trashing your body, okay? And you can have a cheat day every once in a while, but the point is, is that eating fried foods, we know on a regular basis is not the way to go. But the problem is many of us live in these food deserts. So therefore, those of us that are entrepreneurs have to say, hey, can we open up grocery stores and fresh produce stores in, in these neighborhoods? So, you know, I, I have an affinity in leaning into Detroit. There's an area in Detroit that is a food desert where I am trying to be an activist and trying to raise money and capital to open up things in that area. Now, again, it goes back to raising money. Are we willing to invest in these types of things? And, and are people out there willing to invest? All these companies that are announcing $100 million initiatives for this, for black this and black that, where is that money? Where is that money? Because I haven't seen a black, a black fresh produce store open yet, but you keep telling me you're, you're gonna give $100 million. So, so who is that money going to? It's just like that $2.4 trillion allocation the federal government did. You know, We're in the middle of a pandemic and the stock market is at all time highs. Where's that $2.4 trillion? We know exactly where it is. It's in the stock market. What percentage of black people own uh, stocks in those companies that are riding all-time highs? Very low percentage. So where did that money go? Your taxpayers? It went to make somebody else rich. And that happened under all of our watches. So let's be really clear about what's going on. We need to be activists in the community, and we need to get funding and capital flowing in the community, and we need to be our own reparations because ain't nobody coming. No, no one's coming for it. That 2.4 trillion is not coming. It's not coming. So we need to do it for ourselves. So uh, as you know, the name of this publication is Waymaker. When you think back, who were some of the Waymakers in your life that sort of opened up doors and helped you get to where you are today? There are so many, it is countless. I had so many Waymakers, Lewis. And, and, and I still need more. I still need, that never stops. I need Waymakers now, still too. And I wanna be a Waymaker for other folks and I, and, and, and I actively do that. Uh, I think back about my, both of my grandfathers, Harold Hill, they called him Doc Hill. He, were, he had Piedmont, Piedmont Pharmacy in Seneca, South Carolina. And I remember spending my summers there. I remember seeing him in his white, his white pharmacy schmock. And he would, get, he would trade pharmaceuticals for potatoes and chickens for people who couldn't afford it in the community. You know, it was after, after Jim Crow segregation where I saw him, but he was open during segregation when you couldn't go to Rexall or Walgreens and you went to Piedmont Pharmacy. And uh, I still remember his voice where he'd answer the phone, Piedmont Pharmacy, Piedmont Pharmacy. That's the way he would answer the phone. And that voice resonated because he was serving the community. Piedmont Pharmacy. And I remember my grandfather, Harry Harper, who was a doctor as well in Iowa, small town. So both my grandparents were from small town. Small town, South Carolina, small town, Fort Madison, Iowa, serving the community. I remember uh, uh, my uncle, uh, Carter, he pulled me to the side when I was a little kid, scared me. Ooh, he said, you better take care of your studies. You better take care of those studies. I was always scared of him, but every time I saw him, how you studies? What's going on? What are you doing? He was attempting to hold me accountable, 
hold me accountable. And I was scared of him. But I remember him holding me accountable. And I think about a professor I had at Brown University, named Professor Martin Martell, a Jewish man, who pulled me to the side one day. He said, when are you going to stop taking advantage of your race? I said, what? He said, you're skating. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're the smartest student I've ever had, and, but you're, not, you're, you're just putting in stuff just to get the A. You're doing the minimal just to get the A. When are you going to start operating at your potential? When are you going to lean in to be great and be the best and do things exemplary and go beyond everything, every assignment, every day, more research, better writing, more editing, more rewriting, reading more, going beyond the assignment, looking at the footnotes of the assignment and reading that article, and then looking at the footnotes of that article and reading that article, and then referencing those in your assignment. I can tell when someone just reads the assignment because they reference stuff in the assignment. But I can also tell when people go deeper because they use the crumbs that lead you deeper, that have that's like, how did they know that? Wow, they read a footnote and they went to that article. I get charged up just think about that right now because that is what life is about. Reading the footnote and going deeper, not just doing the minimal. And he challenged me. He said, as a black person, people are going to expect not even what you can deliver. So therefore, it's going to be, you're going to be good because you're smarter than they are. And they don't expect that. But if you just write on that level, you'll never be great. And I'll never forget him for that. He's passed on and he impacted my life and changed my life because he raised the bar for me. And many of us rise up to the expectations that are placed upon us. And that means we need to expect more from each other because more of us will rise because we have the capacity to do it. But oftentimes we expect too little of each other. For the people who are sort of standing on the sidelines. And I talk to a lot of people who say, I want to do something. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. I don't know how to get it done. They have potential to be waymakers. What advice would you give them? Because as we started this conversation, our community needs more waymakers. So what is the word you would have for people who just, just may be standing on the sidelines right now, trying to figure out what to do and how to get it done? I think the, 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 the easiest and most natural transition to that type of way making for yourself has to do with helping others make a way. And the way you can do that is analyze your life and your movements right now and start to look at who you pass by oftentimes. Who do you run into? Who do you see? And then can you take the risk and have the courage to actually reach out to them, knowing that nine out of 10 of them will not even take the baton, Hmm. but there'll be one who will. The way I did it early on was I used to, even before I wrote my first book, and I believe this led me to actually writing my first book is that I would take certain books that I love that were helpful to me. I'd keep them behind the seat of my car because I'd started to notice 
there would be a lot of brothers, young brothers standing on the corners. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm driving by these brothers all the time and I know there's a better use for their time. How do I connect with them? How do I help them make a way? And, I, and why am I getting an intuition to try to make a way for them? So I said, well, I've read books that have been mentorship on paper. Let's try that. So I keep these books. I see a young cat, white t-shirt, standing on the corner. Nothing. Whoop, pull over. Get out. Hey, brother. You know. You approach him properly. It's not going to be a problem. Hey, man. Yeah, yeah, what's up? What's up? Hey, man, I, got, I just want to give you a book. A book? Man, I don't need a Bible. No, it's not the Bible. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I'm not Jehovah Witness. You know what I'm saying? I'm just gonna give you this. This is a, this is a this is this is called the Millionaire Next Door. This is about becoming a millionaire just through saving some money. Or or this book's called The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. Um, this is about the fact that we all could be peaceful warriors in life. Or or this book's called Letters to a Young Poet, and it's about this young poet who thought he was great. And but when I had my book Letters to a Young Brother, I said this book's called Letters to a Young Brother. It's by me. Is I wrote it for you, a young brother. And I want you to just read it, okay? I got paid for it. No, oh, man, I'm not selling you the book. I'm giving you this book. There's lessons in this book. And if you apply them to your life, there's better things for your time than stand on this corner and doing whatever you're doing on this corner. And you may feel like you need to do what you're doing on this corner, but you don't. In fact, if you're going to tell me the reason why you're on this corner is just to make money, I can show you 2,000 different ways to make significantly more money with less time that doesn't potentially require a complete downside of you losing all your options. No judgment, just choices. No judgment, just choices. No judgment, just choices. Thanks, man. All right. God bless you. Easy conversation to have, and you don't know whose life you're changing. And that is incorporating making a way out of things you're already doing. And that's why I say to start there, because if you start incorporating that muscle and exercising that muscle through your life, like when when I was a big big brother and big brothers, big sisters, it's like you don't need to change your life to change theirs. I would just add my little brother into my life. Like, it wasn't coming up with special things for him. It's like, man, I got to go do this audition, get in the car, <laughs> you know, uh, whatever that was. And so uh, to make a way for someone else, you don't have to change your life. Just actually start reaching out. And as soon as you develop that courage muscle, you start to find new ways to touch people. And you start finding new ways to make a way for yourself. That's the key point there. I believe because I started handing out books it planted the seed in my head that I should write my own book because none of these books were quite right for the young brothers I was handing them to. They were good, but they didn't speak to him. And that book didn't exist. So I said, I'm a writing. And that's how Letters to a Young Brother was born. So there, there are a lot of people of color here who believe that they only get one shot. And if they blow that one shot, they're done. What is the biggest mistake you've made in your career and how did you recover? You trying to get me to cry like one tear like Denzel and Gloria? 
<laughs> Why you making me relive? I've made so many. Man, I made so many mistakes. Yeah. <sighs> uh, I remember early in my career, I got a coveted job. A job I had to audition like seven times to get. It was, they were adding a black character to Married with Children, a rec black recurring character. And the final test, I was testing against this really young, funny dude named Dave Chappelle. And he and I tested against each other. He's a little younger than me. And he was funny and every, he had a lot of hype because everybody said he's so funny. But I won the role, you know, because I was a better actor than Dave. And this was, you know, he may be funnier than me, but I'm a better actor. And so this was an acting job. You know, you had to read a script. It wasn't just, you know, be funny. So I won this role. It was massive for me. Married with Children was like one of the number one shows on TV. But at the same time, my goal in, 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 in entertainment, I always wanted to win an Oscar. And I wanted to be like Sidney Poitier, Denzel Washington. And um, so I wanted to do films with the top directors. And a film came along um, called Smoke. And um, I think it was Ang Lee was the director, but it had William Hurt, Oscar winner, Stocker Channing, Oscar winner, Harvey Keitel, Oscar winner. And um, it was to play opposite William Hurt. And I was young in my career, I didn't know any better. And the, the film company said, you have to, if you want to be in the movie, you have to screen test on such and such a day. Uh, and that was going to conflict with one of my Married with Children episodes because they did it live to an audience. And I had been asking Married with Children to put me under contract, but they wanted to just keep hiring me piecemeal because you can pay an actor less if you just hire them episode by episode. So you're not contractually obligated but they're just hiring you. So if you're under contract, like I am on The Good Doctor, for instance, I'm contractually obligated. And that's more expensive because you're literally buying someone's availability. So they hadn't done that with me. So I said, oh, I, I, I can't do that test that day for this Oscar level movie because I'm going to be shooting Married with Children in Los Angeles. They want me to test with William Hurt in person in New York. And then... So my agent calls and says, well, they're saying, if you can't do it that day, you, you're out. And you don't have to go to marry with children. You could, you know, because you're not under contract. And I'm like, well, I'm, I want to win Oscars. You know, God bless a sitcom, but I want to win Oscars. And I've always bet on myself. I'm going to do it. So I walk into the executive's office at Mary Church, and I say, you know, um, thank you so much, but can, is there a way you can write me out of this episode, this next episode? Because I got to go to New York to do the screen test. The guy, the executive producer looks at me and says, if you walk out that door, you'll never work for us again. It's done, over. And I walked out the door. And I flew to New York. And I realized they had lied to me because I had heard another actor who wasn't there that day was still going to screen test. And then I didn't get the role. And I was at home back in LA 
I'm you talk of crying boohoo tears because I had won the biggest job of my career and I had given it up over inexperience. Because the one thing I've learned in Hollywood is that if they want you, they want you. And they may try to get you to show up on a particular day, but if they really want you, they're going to make a way. They, they'll give you another day. And if they kind of don't want you, then you shouldn't blow something. You know, don't take, don't get rid of a bird in the hand worth, you know, for two in the bush. And, um, you know, that, that choice has hurt me since. It still hurts me because it was, I wish I would have had people in my life to give me better advice because I was literally operating off my own choices rather than someone saying, hey, no, 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 no. We're going to call him and say, hey, if you want Hill, you got to work out of time because he's working. Well, well clearly you recovered. I recovered. Because <laughs> you're not doing too bad I haven't now. Recovered, I haven't recovered psychologically. The scars, the PTSD scars are still there because you almost brought the tear. It was almost like an episode of Oprah way back in the day where everybody, you, you almost had to cry. I was like, man, why are you, why are you bringing this up? You know. It's, 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 it, you know, it's probably impacted my, my relationships with women and everything. <laughs> it's, it's filtered over to every aspect of my life, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, man, it's, it's, uh, I was, you, you recover because you stay in it and you realize there are always going to be bumps. There's always going to be obstacles. There's always going to be things where you believe that something's going to be bigger than it is. I have countless stories like that in my career. I have stories where I got the movie, did the movie. People told me I was going to win an Oscar in the movie, and then the movie lost its distribution, and the only people that saw it were my mother and the director. So that those movies exist that no one's ever seen where I've done my best work. And so, you know, those things are going to happen. We can't control the results, but we can control our actions, and uh, and we can control our attitude. I never, I've never. The one thing I can say about myself is that I've never, I've only allowed myself ever in my life a period to have a messed up attitude. I, you know, sometimes you get into those attitudes, but, but give yourself a window for that. And then, and then after that, because attitude is everything, attitude and energy, everything, no matter what you do. Well, you've clearly recovered. You've got an amazing career. Uh, I told somebody, I said, I think Hill Harper been on television just about every year for like the last 20 years. <laughs> I said, I think he didn't did more work than any other black person in television. <laughs> That's funny. It could be. It could be, man. You know, I, I think that when I see Anthony Anderson, I think that. So I think he, I think Anthony may have done more than me, but, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but, but I, I think I think you got the years on him though. I think you I got, got a years, years on. on. I do got a couple years off. Well, this has been great, man. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, it's gonna bless somebody uh, when they read it, and it's gonna encourage some people to be waymakers. Uh, I think our community needs it. I think our country needs it, and uh, I know that I'm doing all I can to sort of you know create more waymakers. And uh, as our motto says, grow your life and change the world. Mm, I love it. Grow your life and change the world. Thank, thank you, Louis, for what you do for all of us. 
Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Hill Harper. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. And don't forget to claim your first six months of the Waymaker Journal free at waymakerjournal.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode.